0: morning I want to uh I want to share with you a little bit from the books of Matthew and the first chapter of Luke now typically um I would tell you, we encourage you to bring your Bibles and to turn in your Bibles there. But today's a little bit unique. What I've done is, is kind of taken these two chapters and I have meshed them together to give us kind of a chronological uh, view of, of what went on uh, through these events. And so it's probably best just to stick to your notes today is what I'm trying to say, either on the screen or in your notes. But before we get to the text, I want to give you a little bit of background information about what's going on, not just when we arrive at Joseph and Mary, but what's going on uh, for the entire nation of Israel, and furthermore, frankly, for for the entire world. From the beginning of human history, um, but most specifically the nation of Israel, we have this spiritual anticipation that is brooding inside the hearts of every person, especially the Jewish community. Because way back in the beginning of uh, Genesis, when Adam and Eve, they fell into sin, God covers their shame and forgives them of their sin, God promises them that there is going to be one day a redeemer, a savior, a messiah who is gonna come and he is going to finally deliver them from their sin and from their guilt and from their shame. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea. These foreshadowings of the Messiah, the work that he's going to do, you see it throughout all the Old Testament. It's highlighted, especially in books like uh, the prophet Isaiah, Uh, you see these things. So there is this spiritual anticipation that is bubbling inside of every Jewish family because no one knows what generation or what family Messiah will be born from. And so there's constantly this yearning for the deliverance of sin and shame. But even more than that, the nation of Israel is deeply oppressed by governments all throughout their history you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, or excuse me, to the book of Exodus, and you can find the people of Israel, they're enslaved uh, by Egypt, Uh, they're delivered, and and they try to uh, live out their lives for the Lord, but they end up going into rebellion, they fall away from God, so God sends other nations to judge Israel. They find themselves getting beat up by the Assyrians, stolen away by the uh, Babylonians, Persia comes in and oppresses them. And by the time that we find this narrative, in this situation, what we have is perhaps the most oppressive government that Israel has ever been under in the Roman government. And so all of these people that are yearning for a spiritual deliverance, even as much so, they are now yearning for a physical deliverance, that this king, when he comes, he's not just gonna deliver us from our sin, but he's gonna deliver us from our situation. And he's going to allow Israel to become all that she's ever intended to be in what God's purposes are for Israel. And so when we find ourselves here in the the opening chapters of the Gospels, what we find is a people in the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, we find a people that are incredibly frustrated because the promises of God for this Messiah uh, are not short-lived. They are, they are thousands of years in the making. They are hundreds of years removed from the writings of the prophets. So what we find is that people who are incredibly frustrated, they have tried to devise religious systems Upon religious systems to make to ensure their structure is presentable to the Lord, they have tried revolt after revolt against these rep- uh, oppressive governments, but they find themselves continually falling short. so they're battle weary, they're frustrated, they're just completely depleted. Um, they're they are exhausted. It's a very, very dark time in Israel's history. It's so dark as a matter of fact. We're told that the last prophetic word that had come forth before these opening gospels was 400 years before these events took place. It was a dry spiritual time and a very dark time for the people of Israel. And so this is the context, this is the setting as we open the scriptures and we find ourselves here. Um, Let's read together. Scripture says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel, the angel, appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the Word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before their marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and he did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their ancestral towns to register for the census, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee and took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And Joseph named him Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning for the word of the Lord. We thank you today for the incarnation of Jesus All that it means for us, Lord, and all that it means for Israel, not just on a physical spectrum, but Lord, what it means to us in the spirit realm also. That we could now be considered the sons and the daughters of the Most High God because of this gift of your grace. We thank you for it. I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would be welcome here in this house. I want to ask you today, just as Jesus reminded us, that you uh, will send the Holy Spirit who will be our comforter, but he will also be our teacher. And I pray that you will teach us this morning specifically, personally, all that you have for us. And I pray it in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. A few years ago, a pastor and I uh, discovered that we have, there are several things that we have common interest in, but um, we found that we have an extraordinary common interest in a particular thing, and that there is a very specific food that Pastor and I are very passionate about. And I don't use the word passionately lightly. I use it with every ounce of what it could be intended to mean. We love this certain type of food, and it's not just Pastor. His son Jeremy is on, on the, the train with us, and um, we, are, we are literally so in love with this type of food that whenever we travel and we're able to uh, eat at this restaurant, we will like send each other, we'll text each other photos as to kind of say, look where I'm eating and you're not, you know, we'll kind of like rub it in a little bit and all these things. Some people would classify this restaurant as fast food, okay, um, but if, if you've ever had the food at this restaurant, you understand that this restaurant deserves a category on its own, okay, it's not, it's not fast food, okay. It's a very special thing, and many of you have heard of it and perhaps even eaten there. Um, It's a restaurant called Whataburger. Um, Now, let me bring a little bit of clarity. I see those hands. I see those hands. Let uh, Let me bring a little bit of clarity and say this. It is not the Whataburger in West Columbia, okay? I don't know what that is, okay? And I don't mean to dishonor the owners. God bless you if you were here. But it's something very different than that in Whataburger. And uh, we have found a deep love uh, in that. And uh, last year I was in town. I had to to do a quick trip into uh, Florida. And the restaurants were only in, like, you know, the most southern states. I think it originated in Texas and kind of spread through a little bit. And so um, I was in Florida earlier this year for, like, three days. And I ate at Whataburger four times in three days. Um, And... uh, I just want I, I to encourage you, okay? If you ever have the opportunity to eat at Whataburger, it's got like a cult following now. I mean, they have like shirts and mugs and all this kind of thing. If you ever get the opportunity, you've got to go and eat at, at Whataburger, okay? Um, they got a big menu, but don't complicate it, okay? A number one, Bart's root beer, extra large size, you're good to go, okay? Um, now, it may cost you like $38, Okay. <laughs> Um, but trust me when I say you will thank me, okay? I plan over the next six months to get all kinds of texts and phone calls to people like, thank you so much for the recommendation of Whataburger. Um, and so, so and, and you know, if you don't get an opportunity to, to eat there in this lifetime, it's okay, because I'm sure like at the marriage supper of the lamb, there's gonna be a side that has, you know, hey, we have all of this incredible, but here's the Whataburger section. Um, and that's where you can find me, Okay. Um, but I remember, uh, I remember growing up, ironically, it was kind of strange because I was repulsed by the idea of Whataburger. I mean, my dad loved Whataburger like I do. And so he would, uh, you know, if he was leaving work, he may call the house and say, hey, listen, um, if you uh, want me to, I'm going by Whataburger to get something. You want to pick you up something or, you know, do you want to go to Whataburger or whatever. And every time as a child, I would say, no, I, that's disgusting. Why would I ever want to do that? And what I realized as I became an adolescent, I realized that something very, very tragic had happened. As a child, I did not hear my dad saying, what a burger. I heard my dad saying, water burger. And all I could think about was a soggy, you know, like like when they're doing the hot dog eating and they're dipping the bread and they're shoving, that's all I could think of was this soggy bun and like gross tomatoes and onions and the meat's wet and just, and I'm like, of course not. I would never want to do that. When I became an adolescent, I realized it wasn't water burger. It was Burger. <laughs> and I experienced the glory, <laughs> the majesty and the goodness of a number one from Whataburger. And I hope that you're able to do the same. What I realize is this, is that as silly as that sounds, I realized that there was a potential for me to miss out on something absolutely incredible and life-changing because of a simple misunderstanding. understand that? I, I, I understand that's a silly example to use, But I'm telling you, if you understood how much I love Whataburger today, it would make sense to you. I think in the Christian faith, especially the Protestant arena of Christian faith, I think when it comes to understanding the life of Joseph and Mary, especially the life of Mary, I think that there has been a gross misunderstanding of who she was and what she did. I think that many people, and we are Protestant Christians, okay, we're, we're in that realm, but I think what has happened is that many of us have heard different traditions and teachings about the mother of Jesus, Mary, that were very extreme. They were like, they were very extreme, and, you know, some have basically got to the place where Mary is idolized or worshiped. Uh, some traditions pray to Mary, um... Some believe things like uh, Mary was not just a virgin when Jesus was born, but she was perpetually a virgin uh, through the rest of her life, even though she had like six other kids. Um, uh, there are things that, that, that believe that that Mary, um, you know, did not die an earthly death, but bodily translated in the same way that Enoch or Elijah would do. It's, it's, it's these teachings and these things that we've heard in different traditions. And Protestants looking at this, we have taken a position where we want to push back against this, right? But instead of appropriately pushing back and saying, no, come on, let's examine the scriptures to see what the scriptures have to say about Mary. What we've done is that we have overcompensated and pushed so far back on those extremes that we found ourselves in another extreme. We found ourselves in a camp that oftentimes completely rejects Mary or displaces Mary for the simple reason that they they say things like, man, you know, we don't want to emphasize Mary too much because we don't want to give this tradition a foothold and run away with Mary. We want to keep her down low in her place. And the struggle is this, is that neither one of these are right. Neither one of these approaches to the life of Mary and Joseph are scriptural, None of them have any biblical foundation. Most of them are either wrong traditions or responses to wrong traditions that end up wrong. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the devil is always trying to trick us into extremes. That's exactly what you can see as you go through the doctrines of the church. There are so many extremes that we find ourselves in. What we need to do when we approach the life of Joseph and Mary is we, not, we, we need not find ourselves in this camp, and we need not find ourselves in this camp. The camp that we need to find ourselves in is in this camp, where we go and we say, Father, what do you say in your Scripture, which, by the way, is inspired by the Spirit of God, preserved from error. What do you have to say about Mary and about Joseph and the lives that they live? And I'm afraid that because some have overestimated the value of Mary and some camps have underestimated the importance of Mary, we've found ourselves in a position where we don't treat Mary rightly. And therefore, we misunderstand and we miss out on all the riches that Mary's life can bring. So this morning, what I wanna do is I want us to go to the scriptures. I want us to go to the scriptures and say, Lord, what do you have to say about the life of Mary? What do you have to say about Joseph? And I believe that we're going to find some really interesting things as we go through this. Really quickly, as we just give kind of a bullet point run through of things that we see in the life of Mary, we find in Luke chapter one that an angel of the Lord says that Mary is blessed and highly favored, revealing her devout devotion to the Lord our God. We see in the same chapter that Mary, and consider this, Mary, as a young girl, is entrusted to be the mother of God. I mean, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that Mary gave birth to Father God the Creator and through her, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jesus is God. And through the incarnation, she became the mother of God and was called to steward his life from infancy to adulthood because of her incredible character. We find Mary was deeply involved in the ministry of Jesus. We find at the very first miracle at Cana, at the wedding of Cana, you remember this, when the the wedding host, they realize that the wine has been depleted. What does Mary do? She says, I know somebody who can fix it. She goes to the servant. She says, listen, we don't want to ruin the party. We don't want to cause a scene. But I'm telling you, this man, he's special. There's something different. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. We find her involved in his teaching ministry. We find as people uh, are listening to the Savior teach that Mary is with them in the crowd and people call out from the crowd in Luke 11 and they're saying, blessed are you, Mary, for this man nursed at your breast. Blessed are you, you are highly favored just as the angel would say. We find Mary is so faithful that she is one of the final few with Jesus as he goes to the cross. The thousands and thousands of disciples that have followed him for the past few years, all of a sudden they're vacant. There's a few, maybe a half dozen people. Mary, his mother, is there with him. And can I say furthermore that what we find in the Gospels is not just this about Mary that we're gonna explore, but we also see the heart of Jesus for Mary realize Jesus is on the cross. He's breathing his final breaths, right? And in the midst of this, he still has the mind and the heart towards Mary to look to John the apostle, his closest friend and ally. And he says, John, this is now your mother. And mother, this is now your son. John, take care of mama. And he issues even in his final breaths on the cross. We find that she's so faithful the last time that we actually see Mary. Find that she's so faithful, not only through his birth and his adolescence and his adulthood and his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection, but we see that she is so faithful to follow Jesus. That she's found in the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended his final instructions, were to go to Jerusalem, pray, and wait, because I'm sending the gift of the Spirit. There's 120 people gathered in the room. And this is the last time that we find Mary. She is sitting there waiting, praying, asking the Father to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. She was an incredible woman of God. We find her in this portion of Scripture where Mary is probably 13 or 14 years old, right? And this is not the Mary that, you know, we see in stained glass icons or beautiful portraits and paintings where she has like the rosy cheeks and she's super clean and pale and ding, you know, like a little halo. Um, That's not the Mary that we find in Scripture by any stretch of the imagination, The Mary we find in scripture is just a peasant girl. She probably comes from a home that's not wealthy. She probably doesn't know how to read or how to write. She is just a young girl who's doing the duties of a young Jewish girl just trying to learn how to manage a household. That's the Mary that we find. And we find her in a very unique situation. She is basically, the scripture tells us, that she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now let me explain this for a really quick second. In Jewish culture, there were three different levels of a marriage relationship. The first level of marriage relationship was the agreement, typically, now this did not happen every single time, okay, let me be clear in that, but oftentimes this was the case where parents would prearrange a marriage in childhood okay? So for instance, it's important to understand that, you know, most of these villages and towns in Israel, they were not towns of thousands of people. It wasn't like, you know, living in Lexington, okay? There's not an enormous pool to fish from, right? It's it's very small, and there are some families. And so most of these cities or towns, they would have, you know, a hundred people or less, many of them. And so oftentimes, if there was a husband and wife that had a son, And they wanted to preserve their lineage. They wanted the lineage to continue. But in their village, they didn't have any other, you know, young children, uh, female children that were about the same age. If they had some friends in the village that had a daughter two or three years later, likely these families would come together and they would prearrange a marriage. Now we're not sure if that's what happened with Joseph and Mary, okay? But it was very common, okay? Joseph and Mary find themselves at the point of engagement. Now this is what typically happened. If there was a pre-arranged marriage, what would happen is that as a young woman approached puberty, she would go through medical examinations. And when it was determined that she was able to carry a child in a healthy way, that would instantly begin the engagement process. The engagement being betrothed was a year-long process. And so as soon as they determined that she was able to carry a child healthily, that would immediately begin a year-long process of engagement that would end in a marriage relationship. Okay, now, this situation where we find Joseph and Mary, they are engaged in this moment. they're engaged, they're, they're in the midst of this. and what's interesting to understand is that in the engagement process, um, how do I say this? you did not have the freedoms of marriage, if you understand what I'm saying, but it did carry certain responsibilities of marriage, okay, so you could do some things that married couples could do, but there were other things that were still off limits, okay? And this is where we find Mary and Joseph. Now, what most scholars assume is that Joseph is probably 15, 16, 17 years old, okay? Um, We know very little about Joseph's life. We know that he um, he was a craftsman. The Bible says, you know, in, in English it translates that that he was a carpenter. Other translations could that could be interpreted as a stonemason. Um, he was a craftsman. That's that's what we know of Joseph. We know his lineage, but, but beyond that, we really don't know a great deal about him. As a matter of fact, the last time we, we see Joseph in, in his encounters with, with the angel and, you know, Egypt and all these kind of things, but then it skips like, you know, 10 or 12 years, and then we see Joseph at the temple, right? You remember when, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus to worship at the temple? They leave in a caravan, uh, and then they realize at a certain point, we left the Son of God. We don't know where the Son of God is, right? How would you like—you ever left a kid somewhere— I mean, that's frightening, right? When, it, when it's your child. But you're talking about God, right? <laughs> I didn't just lose my kid. I left God somewhere. I can't find him, okay? So they go back and they retrieve him. And this is the last time that we see Joseph. Most people believe that Joseph probably died an early death most most people in, in that era only lived, you know, into their, their late 30s, you know, late 40s at, in, in a lot of uh, areas. So most people believe that this is where Joseph, um, his life ends. Now, the interesting thing about Joseph is that we do not have one recorded word coming from the mouth of Joseph. He never speaks in scripture, right? But what we do have Are the actions of Joseph, which are absolutely mind blowing and convicting. And so, today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about some character issues that we find in the lives of Joseph and Mary and how incredibly well they handled those things. Sure, there were all the different characters that we find throughout the Gospels and, you know, in, in this moment where the the announcements made for the child and the birth, we have, you know, we have all these different characters. We have, you know, the Magi that come from thousands of miles away. We have Elizabeth who is going to be the mother of John the Baptist. She's married to Zachariah. Zachariah is, is a priest and, and you remember he, he doubted what the Lord had said and so God had struck him with muteness until the child was born. Um, You have uh, Herod who goes on this killing spree trying to smother Messiah. You have the the shepherds that are on the hillside in Bethlehem, just faithful Jewish men living out their lives as they wait on Messiah. You have all of this activity going on in the angelic realm. You have uh, God showing up and speaking. You have all of these different things. And it's amazing. It's amazing When you take a step back and you begin to look at all of this, it's almost as if the natural realm and the supernatural realm are constantly intertwined, like constantly going in and out. Angelic visitation, it's not a special thing. It's a daily thing, right? You you start seeing all of these incredible moments that are happening and all of these things are really truncated into these short portions of Scripture. But out of all the amazing things that transpire, in these these two or three portions of Scripture, what's often overlooked is the character of these two children. You understand, I'm not sure the last time you hung out with a 13-year-old girl. (laughs) Or the last time you spent time with a 15-year-old boy. Right? Right? But maturity and character are not, I'm not saying they're not mature and they don't have character. I'm just saying it's not high on their priority list, right? There are other things that are, there's sports and there's girls and there's, there's all kind of things that are high on the priority list. But being a person of character and maturity, thank you so much, dear. Being a person of maturity and character are not always first and foremost on the front of their minds, And I think sometimes we get so snookered as we read through the Christmas story around Christmas time. We begin to, to read all these things. And what we do oftentimes, I'm guilty of this, is that we read kind of a cursory reading of the scripture and it sounds so well put together. It sounds oh so lovely. But we forget that there were a lot of hard decisions, unfair decisions that had to be made by these two individuals. It's kind of like a Bradford pear tree. Have you guys ever, do you know what a Bradford pear tree is? One of the most beautiful trees on the planet when it's in full bloom. Earlier this year, uh, my family and I, we, we met our, some of my family at a lake house in Northern Alabama and uh, we spent a weekend there and um, the house was across the street from this sheep field and there were hundreds of sheep over there. And uh, so the kids loved that. That was really neat and everything. And in the backyard, there was this beautiful Bradford pear tree in full bloom. I mean, beautiful. And my kids saw it, and they were just like, it's snowing. And I was like, no, but we can treat it like snow, you know. And so um, so we, we saw it from a distance, and we, we started to, um, uh, you know, be in the yard and different things. And we started every now and then, we get this whiff of, of death, <laughs> something that smelled like utter death. And I remember we were in the yard and I was thinking, man, what, what the heck is that smell? You know, and I started, those poor sheep, we blamed those sheep for days. We were like, those sheep are, that's disgusting. You know, I don't see how shepherds do it. They need to slaughter, you know, let's take the milk and the meat. Let's, you know, that's, I blamed those poor sheep for three days that week. And on the last day we were there. I took one of my little girls, and she was like, I want to go, you know, see the tree. And so we went over to the tree, and I was hit in the face with the most repugnant smell I've ever smelled in my life. And it's because if you ever get close to a Bradford pear tree, as beautiful it is, as it is, it smells like death. And I think sometimes the way that we treat Scripture is we see it from a distance, and it's beautiful. It's well put together, There's no missing parts. There are no broken limbs. Everything is just kind of lovely. But the closer that you get to Scripture, and the more that you dig in and you approach things a little bit further, the more you find that some things in Scripture just stink. Right? And I don't mean that derogatory. I mean that to say that there are oftentimes situations that happen in Scripture that we don't understand. There are things that happen in Scripture and say, Lord, that's not fair. Like, I don't understand that. Why, why would you allow, why would you ask people to do, why did this situation evolve? And I think so much so, we see the Christmas story and we see this beautiful Bradford pear tree from a distance. And it's amazing and it's lovely and Mary and the halo and Joseph and the stoutness. And we see all of this, but when we get close to it, we realize, man, there were some really difficult decisions that had to be made. There were some things that just frankly we're not fair to these young man and this young woman and what we find is simply this is that joseph and mary teach us the most appropriate ways not only how to live but how to respond when god calls and i just want to remind us today that how we live and how we respond when God calls still matters today. It still matters. You see, in the Western church, over the past 50 years, we have been obsessed. We have been obsessed with personalities, right? We find people that are incredibly gifted or incredibly charismatic, or men or women who have, uh, you know, incredible church growth strategies, or men or women who are gifted, uh, spiritually gifted by God with the gifts of the miraculous, or healing, or deliverance, or whatever the case may be. And in the West, we have flocked to these people, and we have, we have, we have done our best to put them up on a pedestal. We have done our best to elevate them in places that they should have never been elevated And in the midst of elevating them, what we've done is we have forsaken the character. And then we seem surprised when they fall. As if we didn't expect this by elevating them to places they never should have been. You see, Ian Bounds said it like this, and I I love Ian Bounds. This is what he said. He said, the church is looking for better methods In other words, he's saying the church is looking for dynamic personality. It's looking for dynamic strategy. The church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. He's saying, listen to me. He's saying, don't let the charisma, don't let the giftings, don't let the intellect, don't let the insight, don't let the spirituality, don't allow these things to become more than what they are in the eyes of the Lord. Because beyond all of that, the Spirit of God cuts through it and he says, no, I want to know who you are. You guys listen to me. We never see Joseph or Mary walking down the road laying hands on people, healing people. We never see them preaching a sermon. We never see them being used mightily by God the way that we would perceive being used by God and mightily. But let me tell you this, when you take a step back and you really look at it, perhaps they were used more mightily by God than those who do have the supernatural giftings. And it wasn't because of what they did. It was because of how they submitted and how they responded. And character today, even the character that most people will never see. Joseph and Mary have a way about making decisions that are noble but in their mind may never be revealed to the rest of the world. And in that, we find an incredible challenge for us today. So today what I want to do is just walk you through just a few different areas in which we see the character of Joseph and Mary revealed and how it may apply to our lives. Number one is this in your notes. What we find is that Joseph and Mary chose dignity Over dishonor. In a sequence, in a timeline sequence, this is what we find. We find an angel of the Lord come to Mary, and the Spirit of God impregnates Mary. She becomes pregnant. What most scholars believe is that before she was showing her pregnancy, that Mary goes off to visit with Elizabeth, which is recorded in Scripture, and she's there three or four months by the time she comes back and she sees Joseph gets what's happening now. She's showing. Joseph up to this point had no idea what was going on. She shows up pregnant and the only logical explanation listen to me the only logical explanation for Joseph as he looks at Mary is to say she has had an affair. That's the only logical explanation. He may think that she has mental issues because she's proclaiming God got her pregnant. He may think all these different kind of things, but the only logical explanation is that she has had an affair and now she is pregnant because I know I haven't slept with her, right? This is Joseph's mindset. And so Joseph then goes and he decides that he will quietly divorce this woman so that he not extend her humiliation beyond what it's already going to be. We find, this is what's fascinating about the character of Joseph, we find that Joseph makes this decision before he knows that God is ever involved. Because it wasn't until he decided that he would divorce her that an angel shows up and says, no, don't divorce her. Take her as your wife, for this is of the Lord. But Joseph, being the man of character, even before the word of the Lord, Joseph decides, you know what, I've been done so wrong but I'm gonna choose to honor her and to do this discreetly so she doesn't have to face more humiliation. You know why? Because Joseph was living out a principle that our pastor tries to instill in us all the time. You hear him say it all the time, especially like in our staff meetings as as we're trying to lead the church and, and do what's right before the Lord. You'll often hear our pastor say this. He'll say, it's always better to be done wrong than to do wrong. It's always better to be done wrong than to do wrong. Now, Joseph wasn't done wrong. Ultimately, what we find is that Joseph really wasn't done wrong by Mary, but he 100% believed he was being done wrong by Mary. But even believing that she had done him wrong, he decided that it's better for her to do me wrong than me to do her wrong. And So I'm going to do this quietly. I'm going to help her as she walks through this. And we see this time and time again in the men and women of God in the Scripture. We see people constantly covering the shame of other people who were fallen. Men and women of God who should not be where they are, and their their sons are covering them. We see David as he is, you know, being tracked down, literally to be slaughtered at the hands of King Saul. Have opportunity after opportunity to take the life of the king, but David says far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. That's a job for somebody else. It's an honor, even though David was being done wrong. So the question is this. What is our response when we are done wrong? And I gotta be honest, my response isn't always great, you know? But I learned a really powerful principle from one of my a great mentor of mine, uh, Richard Crisco, he's a, he's a pastor in Michigan now. He was part of the Brownsville Revival. He, he, made this, um, he made this statement one time. This is what he said. He said, as men and women of God, we don't honor people because they are honorable. He said, we honor people because we are honorable. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, we don't honor people that have done us wrong because they've done what is honorable or because they are honorable. No, we honor people that have done us wrong because we ourselves are honorable. And honor is the currency of heaven. It's the way of the Lord. And so we see Joseph and Mary choose dignity over dishonor. Number two, we find that Joseph and Mary chose selflessness over selfishness. Consider that Mary was kind of put in a situation where she had to make a decision that was going to change the trajectory of her life. She had not done anything wrong. This wasn't punishment from God. But he asked her to do a favor for him that was going to change the path of the rest of her life. And she chose the selfless path. Joseph, maybe even more so Joseph, chose a path of selflessness. Think about this. Joseph has to take a woman to be his wife That is already pregnant. It's not his son. He is going to adopt this son into his family and then he's going to raise this son as his own. I mean, that's a character move right there. That is a selfless act on behalf of the life of Joseph. And so, we, we look and we say, well, well, yeah, but Joseph had an angelic visitation. Yeah, I understand he did. But again, that's the pear tree, you know, the Bradford pear tree mentality. Well, he had an angelic visitation. If I had an angelic visitation, I would have done that too. No, you've got to get close and understand, even in the midst of an angelic visitation, you've got to understand that Joseph was still going to face the destruction of his reputation. He was going to have to answer to his parents for the disappointment Of the decision he's making, the embarrassment of his friends, maybe even a financial impact on his on his business. But Joseph carries a mentality that says, My life is not my own. As Mary is approached by the angel, her only question is this. It's like she, she speaks to Gabriel and she says, Gabriel, I'm down. I'm down to do the will of God. But how? I'm a virgin. He explains the scenario, and this is the only statement she makes. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever you have said, cause it to come to pass in my life, regardless of the negative repercussions that may be a part of my life. And I'm going to tell you this. the, The longer that we live this Christian life in this earth, the more probability that God is going to ask you and ask me to do things that can easily be misunderstood, okay? Now, I need to qualify this, and I need to explain this a little bit. I am not saying that we should live, that the norm of our life should be that we are, constantly hearing from the Lord and doing things that God has called us to do and just nobody sees it the way that I see it and it's just me and God against the world. That should not be the normative life of the Christian, okay? But my point is simply this, that there will, as rare as they may be, there will be moments where God expects something from us that even our brothers and sisters in Christ do not understand. It's rare. I mean, I, I've had this happen a handful of times in my life. And I'm not talking, please understand, I'm not talking about anything, you know, against scripture or morality. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about good and godly things. Sometimes God will cause us to sacrifice in a way for the purposes of his kingdom that people now outside, they look and they say, I, I just can't understand that, right? I remember when, when, uh, my wife and I we you know we have like 87 kids right now but we we have we decided after we had two biological children we were going to adopt another child into our family we adopted her and we had the full support of of everybody in the world I mean I mean it was just like man this is amazing this kid is amazing you know and and it was phenomenal and we got a phone call a few months later that her birth mother was, was gonna have another child and the birth mother wanted us to, to bring the child into the home. And we felt compelled that this was the will of God for our lives. Well, the second time around, I told my wife, I said, listen to me. I said, the people in our lives surrounded us and they supported us, they cheerleaded us, they fundraised for us because adoption's not cheap. They, they did everything. I mean, it was incredible. I told her, I said, but the second time around, I said, you just need to prepare yourself. Things are going to change. There are going to be people who question why we're doing what we're doing. It's just going to be a thing, and I can't tell you. People who care about us—I mean, I mean—just a couple people who care about us would would sit on the phone or you know across the table from us, and they they would they would just look and say, "I just don't feel—I don't understand why you feel like you need to do this. I don't understand why you feel like you need to do this." And humbly and respectfully. I would just say, I can't explain it outside of, I feel like this is the will of God. I I just can't explain it, right? And frankly, for most people, that that did not satisfy their question or curiosity. And so what I had to learn, and we all have to learn at some point, is that if we don't learn to handle the disapproval of other people, we will never fulfill the will of God for our lives, okay? Now, again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about, you know, crazy here, okay? I'm not talking about crazy. I'm talking about good and godly things that we sense the voice of God leading us to do. There will be a handful of times in our lives where people just don't understand. And you've heard it said before that if we live for the approval of people, we will die by their disapproval. Listen to me, this shouldn't be a normative life. This should not. And and furthermore, let me just say this. When these moments come, let me tell you how you can usually determine whether this is truly God or just in the flesh. Because usually when these moments come, they are marked with humility, not arrogance. They're marked with humility, not with arrogance. They're not marked with the defiant spirit that says, well, God told me to do it and he is the Lord and you're not. They're not marked by, get behind me, Satan. They're not marked by that. They're marked by a disposition that sits and looks somebody in the eye that deeply cares for them and says, listen, I I know it's hard to understand. And and frankly, there are times where I don't even understand it. But I know this is the will of God and I have to do it. If you support me, thank you so much. And if you don't, we're going to be okay. I'm going to preserve the relationship. We're going to be okay. But I have to do this as I stand before God one day. Joseph and Mary, as children, learned to deal with the disapproval that would come in their lives from the people that were around them because they chose selflessness over selfishness. Number three, Joseph and Mary chose purity over passion. Now, in your notes, it says purity over perversion, okay? I changed that in my notes because I I don't like the term perversion because what I'm about to talk about does not just revolve around sexuality. Even though Joseph and Mary's situation I will talk about, it, it does revolve around sexuality. But I prefer the term passion, and this is what I mean by that. Understanding the sacredness of the moment. Joseph and Mary and Scripture is very intentional. The Spirit of God was very intentional to add this sentence into the narrative. Understanding the sacredness of this moment, Joseph and Mary chose to remain celibate until after the Christ child was born. And listen to me, here's, here's the thing, right? Joseph had every right to have sexual relations with his wife at that point, even when she was pregnant with the Christ child. He had every right to do that, Right? And by the way, let me just say this. You talk about a miracle in Scripture. A 15-year-old boy who has a license to have sex, and he says, no, I'm good, okay? But listen to me. This is, this is the, the posture of Joseph. He says, I don't fully grasp what's going on. I have bodily urges but far be it for me to even get close to violating that which is holy. Far be it for me. I, he had every, listen to me, he had every right to divorce Mary. You understand that religiously, legally, he had every right to divorce her when he first found out. Following that, he had every right religiously and legally to have intercourse with his wife. He had every right to do it, but Joseph, chose responsibility over his rights. Now, let me say this before I go into this next part. I am a red-blooded American. I appreciate and I thank God for every constitutional right that is afforded to me. I've got no, I, I embrace every single one, okay? But can I just say that in our culture, we have so Taught rights that we have forsaken responsibilities. Uh, can I tell you, and I don't say this to be mean-spirited or anything like that, can I tell you, you know, it's obvious, we're in, a, we're, in a, we're in a battle over Roe v. Wade. We're in a battle over abortion in our nation right now. Can I tell you one of the primary reasons we're in such a battle over abortion right now? is because we have taught generations to focus more on their rights than their responsibilities. And now, instead of people stepping up to the plate and saying, I have a responsibility to do right by this child, they stand up and say, no, I have a right to abort this child. And because we have done this, our nation has shifted from a role of being responsible, not just for ourselves, but for other people, and we've camped out in this ideology that says, I gotta have my rights, Even if it means deeply offending you, if it means you get done wrong, if it means whatever the case may be, I've got my rights. I'm going to keep my rights. And I'm just saying that the church has to be the people that say, I love my rights and I will stand for my rights, but I'm also going to stand for my responsibilities. Because sometimes my responsibilities take precedence over my rights. Does that make sense? Again, it's Glenn at glcolumbia.com. I'll be sure to check every email, okay? (laughs) Listen, I'm not, Paul dealt with this, right? Paul dealt with this as as they're talking, you know, there's this huge controversy about eating meat that's been offered to idols. Is it righteous? Is it unrighteous? All these different things. This is huge controversy. And this is what Paul says. Paul says, I am free to eat whatever I want to eat. I'm no longer bound by the law. The law ain't got a hold on me. But This is what he says. He says, but if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. Do you know what he's saying in this moment? He's saying, I got the right to do whatever I want. I got the right to eat the meat if I want to, because I'm not bound by the law. But I have a responsibility to my brother and sister. And if what I do causes them to stumble and fall, I'll just not adhere to my rights. Please don't misunderstand. I think that sometimes, just like Joseph, we've got to take a step back and we've got to ask the question, not what can I do, but what should I do? Because there's a massive difference between these two. And so in this, Joseph and Mary choose purity over their passions. Number four, Joseph and Mary choose obedience over objection. Unlike Zachariah, who literally an angel of the Lord muted him for his unbelief, Joseph and Mary instantly received the word of the Lord. When Gabriel comes to Mary, instantly, I am your servant. Let everything you said be done. When the angel of the Lord goes to Joseph and says, don't be afraid to take her as a wife, he immediately acts, takes her as his wife. When an angel comes and says, listen, there's, there's tyranny coming, take your child and flee to Egypt, instantly he obeys the word of the Lord. While in Egypt, when the angel comes and speaks to him again and says, it's safe to take your children back home, instantly they obey the word of the Lord. What's more fascinating about these children who are obeying the voice of the Lord through dreams and visions is that they are also people who obey the scriptures to a T. The Bible says that Joseph and Mary take Jesus to present him to the Lord in the temple. And after they do that, the Bible says this in Luke 2, 39. It says, when Jesus's parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home. So in other words, they weren't just people who were obsessed with these angelic visitations and these dreams. They were people of the word of God and they were willing to hear and heed the word of God. Obedience is such a funny thing. Are you guys okay? I feel like I lost you like five minutes ago in that little rant. Sorry, Um, kind (laughs) of. Obedience is such a funny thing because we trust the God of the universe with the salvation of our eternal souls, right? Like we're baking everything on Jesus. We're baking everything on the resurrection, right? Everything, your eternal soul. Like in you know 2.7 trillion years, you've banked it on Jesus. But when he asked me to do something in this life, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, can you really be trusted? It's like the most bizarre thing, right? And what, what the, the, we get obsessed with this mentality that says, but, but what if it goes wrong? But what if it goes wrong? But what if it goes wrong? And listen to me, even in obedience sometimes things go wrong. But I think our mindset has to shift and to say, but what if things go right? Like what if things go right? What if things go right? I was talking about the adoption earlier. I remember sitting with, with my wife when we were talking about adopting our third daughter. And uh, I remember sitting on the bed with her and she said, "She said we've done this before. Why are you so nervous? And I said, I'll tell you the number one reason that I'm nervous. I think this is God, but I'll tell you why I'm nervous to obey. I'm nervous to obey because these three little girls are going to become three teenage girls. At the same time! In my house, under my roof, right? I'm going to need an IV with Xanax. Just pop it in and just walk around with Xanax all the time. I'll be great. I'll be fine. But I was so obsessive about, man... Uh, you know, A could go wrong, B could go wrong. You know, every everything, medical, financial, future, schooling, just anything that you could ever think of. I'm obsessed with this. What if it goes wrong? I need to challenge myself, but what if it goes right? What if this calculated faith-filled step, this risk that I'm taking because this is not something that's simply conjured in my heart or in my mind, but I literally feel the voice of God leading me this way. What if it goes really, really right? What are the repercussions then that are on the positive side of events? Listen to me. When Joseph and Mary are doing this and agreeing to all this, you guys listen to me. They didn't know how this was going to turn out. You understand that? The the Messiah, you can read it in the text. Ancient Israel, they didn't think that Messiah was going to come the way that Messiah came. They didn't think that he was going to live the way that he lived. They thought that he was going to come to take over politically, militarily. That was what they were banking on. And so he came in a totally different way than what was in their mind. And Joseph and Mary didn't know how this was going to work out, but again, their mentality was not, it doesn't matter if it's going to work out. I must obey. I must obey. I must obey. See, if we could only have this type of faith, right, if we could only get ourselves to this type of faith and trust, I've said it before and I'll say it till my dying day, but the treasures of God are always buried in the fields of obedience. The treasures of God are always buried in the fields of obedience. And Joseph and Mary chose obedience over objection. Number five, real quickly, Joseph and Mary chose pondering over proclaiming. You realize that Mary had many prophetic words and utterances from an angel and from a prophet A prophetess in the temple, spoken over her life, but also over her child's life. And Mary, in her incredible maturity, stewarded these prophetic words instead of just proclaiming them like I would probably do. You know, if you've ever gotten a word from the Lord, especially if it's for somebody else, right? If you've ever had a dream and you just feel like I have the interpretation, I know what's going on. You know, it's like for me, I remember when, when the Lord just first started speaking to me in those ways, I'd, I'd ponder those things for about 37 seconds. And then I was like, look what the Lord said. And then it was usually misunderstood or misinterpreted or I didn't say it the right way, or something like that. It just kind of would, would fall apart. And what I learned over time is how much I can learn from Mary. Listen to what the scripture says about her. It says that Mary, taking all of these prophetic words, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Do you know one of the greatest tests of spiritual maturity is knowing when to speak up and knowing when to be silent? It's one of the greatest tests. And that that doesn't just go for prophetic utterances, that goes for like Walmart, right? One of the greatest tests of spiritual maturity is knowing the right time to speak up and the right time to be quiet. I'm gonna tell you there's, there's a lady uh, in our church family and for whatever reason, um, the Lord has chosen to speak to her through dreams and prophetic words concerning me and my ministry. Okay, now my wife and I, we're not particularly close to this lady or her husband. We love them and we have had dinner with them or whatever, but um, we don't like do life together. We just, we, you know, that's, that's kind of the relationship, which adds a lot of credibility. Um, but one of the most impressive things, one of the reasons that I feel like I can trust her so much is that every time I get an email or a phone call It usually begins with something like this. Listen, I have something I want to submit to you for you to take to the Lord. And she will usually say, three months ago, six weeks ago, earlier in the spring, she will usually say that the Lord had spoken to her months and months before she ever brought it to my doorstep. And that is an incredible test or it reveals incredible maturity to me because she is willing to postulate and to ponder and to say, Father, am I hearing from you? What does this mean? When is the right time to share? Because unlike her, my tendency initially was always to share immediately what God had spoken to me. And what I've learned is that that's not always the way that the Lord works. You realize that sometimes when God gives us a word, especially for somebody else, you realize that sometimes that word may never need to be released. Yeah. You hear that? Yeah. That word may never need to cross your lips into their ears. Because sometimes when God gives us prophetic utterances, or gives us instruction, our responsibility is not to proclaim it sometimes, but it's oftentimes to pray it through. Sometimes it's to pray it through to fruition, because sometimes when a prophetic word comes to you or to me, if we are not prepared to receive that word, we will try to make that word come to fruition ourselves. And sometimes we need people in our lives who will do the work of prayer for us as the word comes. And so this is what we find in Joseph and Mary, especially Mary, that she is pondering instead of initially proclaiming. Number six, and we're wrapping up, is simply this. Joseph and Mary chose giving all over giving in. I want to remind us of how incredibly faithful Mary was to Jesus. Morning sickness, child labor, uh, unsanitized, unmedicated child labor. And, and it wasn't even like she was trying to have a child. She was fulfilling a favor of God, right? It was kind of placed on her. I don't know, how many of you have ever given birth? I remember I was in the room when my wife gave birth twice, right? And I was crying for an epidural, Right? <laughs> Not for her, for me. I was like, I can't handle this. This is way too much. This woman is put in a position where she is going to give unsanitized, unmedicated birth to a child that she originally hadn't even planned for. When Jesus matures, as he grows into a child, into adolescence, she she remembers what the angel of the Lord says. But let me remind you that, that those dreams were perhaps decades old. You know how things kind of wear off over time. The angelic visits, the words from the Lord, those were years ago. She's at a place now where Jesus is an adolescence. He's fully stepping into his God nature before her eyes and she's tussling with how do I manage this child? How do I lead this child? She's there with him, right? When the thousands of people are following Which is easy to do if you're a parent. Look at my baby boy. I knew he was going to be something special. (laughs) And then he all of a sudden starts prophesying how he's going to die and how he's going to come back to life. And then he starts talking to the people about how he is going to give them his body and they are going to eat of his body and drink his blood. They begin to leave because that's weird. Faithful Mary stays through, and she stays true. When he goes to the cross, she's there watching her son not only being unjustly arrested and beaten and ridiculed. She's watching her son suffocate to death on a cross. Mind you, she's the only, she is the only person whoever lived, to hear the first words of Jesus and the last words of Jesus because she was faithful and true all the way through. See, I know that life is challenging for all of us. And the reality is this, we fail. We disappoint God. We let him down. We frustrate him, I'm sure, at times. We we do that. But the reality is this, is that, you know, as Hebrews reminds us, that even in our faithlessness, he is faithful. Now, the easy thing in life is just to say, well, I blew it. I disappoint God. I've got forgiveness, the grace of God, which is true and right and everything in between. But I want to tell you, man, when it comes to the end of my life, I want to be found faithful. I don't want to be found faithless. I don't want to be found as a person who's making excuses for all my faith. I want to be faithful. I want to fight the good fight. I want to endure to the end. I want to be faithful in a way that Mary and Joseph were faithful. Now, you're probably saying, Corey, wow. You have just taken us through a thousand little issues that are not really related. The people are related, but there are a thousand different like character issues Okay, I'm going to have to digest this for, you know, a couple of months. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, yes, I wanted to do that, but but really there are all these micro lessons within this text, but really there's a greater lesson in the text, which is really what I'm coming to. It's really the the crux of what I want to communicate today. And, and it's simply this. It's a very simple principle. The principle is this, is that, Before the first arrival of Christ, Mary carried the presence of God in her. And Mary understood how she lived mattered. Understand that? Before his first arrival, she carried the presence of God and how she lived mattered. Before the next arrival of Christ, we carry the presence of God within us. Jesus said, it will be like springs of living water, and he will fill you to overflowing. And before he comes this next time, and and let me remind you, he is coming again. And when he comes again, not that he came in shame, but when he comes again, it will not be in a lowly place. And he will not die a sinner's death. He will not come as a lamb. He will come as a lion. He'll come as a king, and he will come to take over. He is coming again. But before he comes again, we carry the presence of God within us. And listen to me, how we live today matters. Far more than what we could possibly imagine. The character choices that we make matter today. The great, the small, they all matter. Listen, this next week, You know, when you have family in town and you're sitting at the dinner table, you know, cousin Eddie shows up unannounced, you know what I mean? And he wants to share all of his insightful political views and all of his conspiracy theories. And then he asks you before God and everybody about your vaccination status, you know, (laughs) How you respond in that moment matters, All right? Our kids are out on Christmas break. Mine are out for like three weeks. Yesterday was day one. <laughs> when they are grading my ever loving nerves, how I respond to them matters. How I respond to my wife matters. My business dealings matter. How I pray matters. How I live. The character that I possess as I carry the presence of God. But listen to me say this. Those who don't carry the presence of God don't understand the gravity and the sacredness of this moment. But those of us who possess his spirit within us, we understand this life is not just my own. This life is more and there is a divine destiny and there's a divine purpose for my life but if i want to fulfill the purposes of god in my life as i carry the spirit of god before he comes again how i live matters and it does amen